Welcome to the inaugural, potentially, episode of The Bailey, where we, for the sake of argument, assume that ISIS is correct and go from there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Yassine Masoud, or Maskhod, if you want to pronounce it correctly. And I'm joined today by 93 and McMuster. I think you're a general, right, McMuster? Uh, On Reddit, I am. Okay. But did you lose ranking outside of Reddit? Yeah, I demoted myself once my uh, my teenage sense of grandeur wore off. I think that makes sense. It's good to have a fresh start. Unless there were some misobedience or malfeasance uh, associated with that demotion. <laughs> so I also didn't fill out much of the topics list, so we can kind of freewheel it however you'd like. There's a, a few uh, issues kind of floating around. Uh, over the weekend that have been hot on the online world, so to speak. There's the story of the quote-unquote journalist, as some people say, Andine Go, who was quote-unquote assaulted in Portland, Oregon. There's the issue of busing that surprisingly came up between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden during the Democratic debate, and potentially whatever else uh, we can we can discuss. I happen to have a personal connection to Andine Go, which I guess takes some time to elucidate if anyone's interested. Yeah, fill me in. I don't really know much about the guy. I just heard about him this morning when I checked back into the news after taking a break for the weekend. I, am I so have no idea who he is. Like, while you explain this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Andine Go, I think uh, the most fair-minded representation is i believe he's in his early 20s he lives in portland he's a gay vietnamese son of refugee family that happens to have what would plausibly be described as moderate to i don't know slightly conservative viewpoints he generally does not oppose he's not in favor of open borders and he's very critical of um Islam and its ideology and its adherence. And he makes a name for himself online by pointing out there's, there's kind of a, a weird cadence in my voice because uh, I'm, I try to grapple with the, the criticism that he faces. Um, so he makes his business is essentially going to protests, filming. And then uh, his focus is, tends to be Antifa, which is a decentralized group of people that engage in a variety of potentially violence. Some would call it, I don't know, fighting fascists wherever they stand. Uh, he made a name for himself by essentially just documenting uh, protests and people really, really don't like him, especially in his hometown of uh, Portland, Oregon. And he gets uh, recognized rather easily wherever he goes and tends to, uh, Uh, generate an intensely strong reaction to his presence. I met the guy during a protest and I just happened to see him standing there with a camera, not talking to anyone. I, to give you some background, I used to be part of a a left-wing gun group called the John Brown Gun Club. And I joined it primarily to advocate for Second Amendment rights in left leaning spaces, which is, and I thought it was important to offer a space for liberals, progressives, and left leaning folks to learn about firearms and appreciate their utility, their importance, their, uh, 
political standing in the world. And from that standpoint, it was, it was very successful. The group I was in uh, often got derided as being part of Antifa, which I wouldn't say was accurate because uh, one of the prime uh, differentiators from Antifa and the uh, John Brown Gun Club is that John Brown Gun Club never masked up. Um, they never initiated violence as far as I was able to see. Uh, although sometimes they did show up armed in uh, protests. And it was, I think, partly a performative aspect, which I recognize. So kind of like an inverse of the Oath Keepers then. Yes. Um, and it was part of... Uh, it was part of the broader national network called the Redneck Revolt, which I hated the name so much because <laughs> for, I think it's obvious why I hate it. Uh, but I was like the only Arab in the, in the group and one of the few people of color, which I don't think is surprising when you're talking about gun culture in the United States. So I, I was part of the group. I, um, and I'll get to what happened, why I say was, because it's directly tied to ending Go. I really enjoyed my time with the group. I thought it was important. Uh, I thought it was a, an interesting aspect and useful one to, to broaden the appreciation of firearms to a demographic that is traditionally hostile to it. I had a, a lot of fun with it. I think I did some good from, from that standpoint and helped kind of the group kind of find its place in determining what the proper procedures are, how to stay safe, how to do it with discipline, et cetera, et cetera. So their, uh, their MO was generally to show up to protest whenever there was a left-leaning uh, protest movement happening. Uh, often it was encounter to Joey Gibson and whatever his group was called. I think it was called Patriot Prayer, but he rebranded several times. I don't, I don't know if I have enough time to really get into who Joey Gibson is, but he is a dude that really likes having protests and because his politics are sufficiently ambiguously conservative, he generates very, very intense reaction from so-called Antifa. So anywhere he shows up, there's almost always a counter protest contingent that is protesting him and calling him a fascist and a Nazi and he has anti followers essentially. Yeah. I think that's probably the best way to do it, to claim it. It's anti followers. He definitely wouldn't be as prominent without them. And this is kind of a point of a criticism that I had about just following him wherever he goes because that tends to just give him a lot more attention. He claims that he's a libertarian. He's half Japanese, half white. And he kind of gets in street scuffles all the time. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's his fault for for doing that, but that's that's kind of the point of fact of his of his presence. That's been generally kind of the setting for these protests. It's a lot of people yelling at each other. The police uh, have started kind of cordoning them off, sometimes putting them on opposite sides of the street. And then when that didn't work, opposite sides of the intersection. So on this day, sometime in December last year, there was a counter protesters. There was a contingency of what you would call right wing elements. And it was just kind of a general celebration of liberty, freedom, gun rights, whatever. Then there were on the opposite side, there was Maoists and a whole slew of alphabet soup, left-wing organizations, everything from, you know, Freedom Socialist Party of America to, I'm making these up, but they're so indistinguishable. <laughs> I, I can't tell like what, what the differences are and how, uh, how they distinguish themselves from each other. But it was kind of jovial and nice. And the group that I was part of, the John Brown Gun Club, had kind of a unique 
position because one of the goals, one of the explicit goals of the, of the organization is something called counter recruiting, where based on the presence of firearms and the shared appreciation of firearms, it was an easy conversation to have with right wing folks. And maybe I think it was called something like the wedge theory, where if someone is nominally affiliated with conservative circles, the idea is not to kind of abandon them uh, for fear of having them completely tip into white nationalist um, areas. So it was kind of a way to say, you know, we understand your concern. Let's talk about it. And maybe you don't have to hate all the Jews. Maybe you, <laughs> you can shift <laughs> on the other end. Yeah, give uh, alternative narratives, essentially. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I didn't participate heavily into it, but I really, I genuinely appreciated the idea and the ethos behind it because instead of just yelling at people, it was kind of more um, sympathetic in a sense. So that's that's where we were in the in December. There were there was this uh, gaggle of left wing gr- groups on one side of the intersection, and then right wing people dressed up as militias with their gropos on the other side. And go, and he just showed up to the left wing side. And as soon as he tried to uh, make it through, and to, this guy is really short. He's he's kind of a tiny person. As soon as he tried to make it through um, the crowd of people in the left wing side, there was a, suddenly this uh, barricade of folks that locked arms and started yelling at him saying, Nazis go home, Nazis go home. And there, there's videos of this on his uh, Twitter page. No, no, Nazis out, Nazis out, Nazi fascists out. He uh, eventually made it. Uh, I don't know exactly how. There was, there was a police presence nearby that kind of gently scolded the left-wing protesters to let a guy on a public sidewalk. So he eventually made it through. And right around this time, the there were members of the John Brown Gun Club with rifles uh, open carried. And they stepped in and said, I don't think we want you here. And this is also caught on tape on his GoPro and that something that he posted on Twitter. I wasn't there when this happened, but when I found out about it, I um, I was really kind of annoyed uh, because I didn't I didn't want to join uh, a gun club to prevent a gay Asian journalist from crossing the road. So I, I tried to have kind of a public walk back and an apology for what happened and kind of elucidate that it wasn't supposed to be our position. That didn't happen. So I ended up resigning. I was quoted as being one of the only protesters that reached out to him and expressed displeasure at how he was treated. And I've had no um, kind of association with the John Brown Gun Club uh, since then. So that's my little quick story. <laughs> it's not really quick, but that's that's kind of my involvement with Ending Go. I really didn't like how he's, he was treated. And I think I always try to maintain a, a sense of charitable interpretation, but I, I, I just can't understand why I, I sort of get why people are angry with him, but it's it seems to fall entirely on tribal lines. Uh, the most cited uh, thing of his that people cling to is that he wrote a what is termed as an Islamophobic uh, article for the Wall Street Journal, where he essentially walked around towns in England and kind of wrote a man on the street eyewitness account of Islamic neighborhoods. He's He's very vocal about, I guess, uh, criticizing or 
exposing any time a hoax a hate is he more or less passive than tim pool i'm not familiar with tim pool who's that uh he's similar he's kind of a semi-neutral journalist uh but is largely conservative in how he covers things that same kind of infuriatingly non-confrontational journalist who annoys left people that that sounds semi-accurate about andy and go i wish uh so, so i was never part of antifa and when i joined the john brown Con club i was very vocal about my displeasure about their tactics because i found a lot of it was to be uh counterproductive in a variety of ways and i had no interest in starting scr- street skirmishes with random people uh i continue to be critical of both the the philosophy of it of street scuffles as well as the tactics and strategic importance of it. Uh, but nevertheless, I think a lot of people associated the John Brown gun club with Antifa just because they occupied proximate areas. And there was a sort of a passive acceptance of what they call the diversity of tactics. Um, so it's a nice euphemism. <laughs> yeah, that's that's usually that's actually what it's called in uh, left wing circles. When you when you want to say we support street scuffles, like it's it's a diversity of tactics. So there was kind of this general kind of peace accord in a sense where we didn't really mess with them. They liked us because we didn't mess with them, and we were anomaly on their side just because just because of the left wing affiliation. But that didn't stop people from equating the john brown gun club with antifa which was always kind of funny to us or that they would call us like the communist with guns or the communist nra even though a minority of our members were communists what were most of them Uh, most people claim to be anarchists well how small a minority because if it was like 30 percent communists that is much more communist than most other groups so i could understand if that was the case (laughs) That's fair, but if you're talking about left-wing circles, that's that's very low. I would say probably less than a quarter, maybe less than a fifth of uh, of members were out about communists. Most people were nominally anarchists and general socialist affiliation. Yeah, so people actually, there's Redneck Revolt actually has members. Is that astonishment on your end? Yeah, yeah, I had that. I had that bookmarked. I just looked it up and I realized I had a bookmark because I used to throw this out there as an example of kind of uh, attempts at left-wing marketing to red drivers and always found it kind of quaint and <laughs> kind of cynical. I didn't know they had unironic members. Yes, the, they did. And um, I think they gained a lot of prominence after uh, Charlottesville in 2017 because they showed up armed and kind of helped escort people. They got a shout-out from... Um, Cornell West, I think is his name. The black intellectual that looks like a homeless man raving. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, if I think you, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. He, uh, he, he gave praise to Redneck Revolt members for, I guess, keeping them safe. I don't, I don't know exactly what happened down there. I don't know what the state of the network is. I think it, a lot of it has dissolved over internal struggles, which is not a surprise when you're talking about left-wing uh, groups. It happens all the time. When I was a part of the John Brown Gun Club, there were uh, it was a national network of uh, different groups located across uh, the country. Some of the biggest have been in, I think, Phoenix, Colorado, New York. I, I, they're, they're kind of been all over the place. And uh, they were kind of semi-autonomous in that they were in charge of 
figuring out their own membership criteria. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the members that, that there was uh, some overlap between what you would consider Antifa and the Redneck Revolt. But at least I can speak on with regards to the to the chapter that I was part of. It was strictly enforced that we didn't. Not only did we not engage in anything illegal, but we didn't discuss it either. So it was kind of like, don't ask, don't tell. I don't know of any... I don't think that there was a significant amount of overlap from my experience. So did their counter-recruitment ever show fruit in your experience? Uh, it did. And there was... Um, there's a group, the Three Percenters. I don't know how familiar we are. you are with them, but they take their name from an erroneous historical fact, which claimed that only 3% of the population participated in the American Revolution, something like that. I, I don't know exactly the history, but that's what that's the lineage that is claimed. And uh, one, of the, one of the groups actually reached out to um, the John Brown Gun Club because they were concerned that they were attracting too many actual Nazis. And they kind of wanted to know Hey, what can we do when when we vet people? How can we um, ferret, ferret this out? Uh, and they also started adding um, language to uh, their recruitment tool that said, you know, our group does not discriminate on the basis of race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, which is not surprising when you're talking about the West Coast. But they they were explicit. It was kind of a coding mechanism. In that they wanted to explicitly uh, state their stance on that issue. So you, uh, your left-wing organization helped a explicitly liberal constitutionalist organization be more solidly liberal and constitutionalist. I wouldn't say that they're liberal. Uh, I think most of them would claim to be libertarian, which is Well, that's broad. basically what I mean. Same okay. difference. Yes, but I think I think there is a there is importance in how language gets coded in terms of the affiliation that it strikes in people's minds. And this was a big step from that standpoint. Maybe not operationally, but definitely from the standpoint of optics, which I think also has an effect when when people are considering which groups to join. They they look for a lot of tells and that that can shift to the demographic pool that they're pulling from. Yeah, it's interesting hearing about activism in general from people who are actually involved in activism because I, it's the, the idea of engaging in any of that really it seems kind of foreign to me. Is it foreign just because it's not familiar to you? Well, just I can't, I don't have the mindset of being able to do that myself. The idea of political organizing, working with other people to advance uh, nebulous political goals. That's fair. Uh, I think from my end... I was very narrow with uh, the goals that I was seeking. I I really just wanted uh, more left-wing affiliated people to uh, appreciate gun rights. And from that standpoint, I think I was very successful, as successful as one person can be within that small group. With regards to the other stuff, a lot of it did feel performative. I was, uh, I was in favor of showing up to protest open carrying, but the not because I thought that there was going to be a gunfight and we were going to be we needed to be ready, but it was more to normalize it. And it, it was kind of shocking how welcoming the left wingers were as soon as they kind of figured out who we were. At first, they, they coded us as right wing because we, you know, we had body armor and, and AR-15s. But as soon as they saw people had like Black Lives Matter patches and <laughs> one guy had a, a Wu-Tang patch and... <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, a bunch of us had stickers that said i'm an anti-fascist i think people were like oh like these aren't right wingers they're they're cool and even though we were openly carrying like we were heavily armed it was it was kind of weird at how quickly uh that shifted and people started taking pictures of us and like coming up to us and saying thank you for being here and even the cops um the police were at first nervous about having two heavily armed groups on either side of a street but i think they they recognized how disciplined we were and how non-confrontational we were because we would we would have civil dialogue with the right-wing elements and it wouldn't be an issue and we wouldn't piss people off uh joey joey gibson even like gave us a shout out once and he said uh, he called us antifa with brains because we we liked guns and he appreciated that <laughs> yeah there's a selection i imagine there's a selection effect for both like you guys and for three percenters and all these armed groups is it selects for what's firearms ownership and enthusiasm like you're not a you're not an actual militia that was raised from randos with guns handed to them. You're actually people with an appreciation for firearms. Yep. That usually and, carries with it a certain respectful attitude. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that was something that we could share and kind of build some sort of bridge across. We would we would also go to Second Amendment rallies and hand out literature. Who knows how effective it was, but we definitely had a different angle to what why we opposed uh, gun control. We wouldn't just say, you know, they're taking out our guns. That's against our freedom. We would talk about, for example, the racist origin of, of gun control and how it was, um, how it's disproportionately enforced. And I think that was compelling to some people, uh, not everyone, but it was, it was interesting. It was like an added um, facet that gun control uh, opponents can use. And I, th- I think that's something that I find frustrating about the topic topic of gun rights in the United States in that it's I've been on the inside of kind of advocates that want to like fight gun control measures and they it just seems so tone deaf. They they talk about how we shouldn't criminalize self defense when a large portion of people just don't care about that. They they don't really look at it from that standpoint and it's so unpersuasive. And I don't think they realize how weak their arguments are. And that's evidenced by how how much they get defeated whenever there's a ballot measure for gun control that people directly vote on. So given my proxy to um, what is known as Antifa, I wish I could say that it gives me a perspective on what their motivations is, but it, it, it doesn't. I'm just kind of baffled by it. I don't know why Andy and Go generates so much hate from these people. And from my perspective, it seems like a bunch of very privileged white people that really want to live out fantasies about street violence and, but not just fantasies of street violence, but righteous street violence because they it's, it's heralded as good by certain subsets of the culture. And it's not really criticized. If you do it properly, you're not just beating up a random person. You're, you're fighting fascism and it's fascinating how quickly these terms get co-opted. So Andean Go is labeled, I mean, these are random Twitter people, but it, I think it illustrates some of the language that that is used. Andean Go is uh, labeled as a Nazi and a fascist. And it's not clear why, except that he's sometimes critical of Islam and points out whenever a hate crime is a hoax. Uh, that's that's the best thing that I can do. And I wish we had someone else that could muster up a, a better steel man of that argument. Well, 
apparently he's an editor for Quillette. Quillette's tagline is, I'm a liberal but, which is how all their articles essentially run, where they're, they start off with someone stating their cred as a liberal, and then they go into why the latest thing that social justice warriors have done is bad. And so, given that Quillette is essentially the anti-social justice times, I could see why the social justice-affiliated Antifa would be upset with him. That's fair. And I think over time, I've gotten incredibly suspicious of I'm a liberal but line that is used as a disclaimer before any critique of uh, social justice tactics. And so someone that explicitly claims to be that doesn't use that line, such as Andy and Go, probably codes themselves as even more fringe within that realm. Yeah. At the same time, though, like a lot of the I'm a liberal but style of argumentation is coming from people who would have been uncontroversially blue Democrats, probably still voting straight Democrat five, ten years ago. Like they wouldn't have had to uh, amend the but at all. It's the liberals i hate i hate the term liberal if it, it, it messes so many things up but uh why does it mess things up uh because the distinction between classical liberalism and what it, that means in the rest of the world versus what it means in america right but a lot of things mean different things across the world and i think so we should probably clarify that we're talking about colloquial liberal in the united states right because in europe it still means i actually don't know libertarian essentially it means American libertarian and yes. libertarian in Europe means anarchist. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how those things got. Crossed. It's a long, it's a long story. Uh, and requires me to re- refresh on my history that I haven't read for years. Yeah. The etymology of those terms, would, I think would be an interesting Wikipedia article to read. Not now, <laughs> but I mean, despite, despite your annoyance with the term liberal, I think you have enough context to understand what people mean when they use it, at least in the North American uh, standard. Correct. So, yeah, my I feel there might be some unfairness directed towards the I'm a liberal but crowd because they would be indistinguishable from any other liberal five, ten years ago. Like uh, people who are still full Democratic voters still full democratic values, but have been left behind by progressivism and its current trends. The woke train. Yes, essentially. What 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 should they be referred to as? Maybe this is an example of where we have this missing gap where we're still grappling with this uh, changing demographic and don't really have the language to properly define it. We have these euphemisms uh, like the extremely online crowd, for example, or tumble tumble arenas which i don't think really applies anymore but it's it's coded to kind of give you a sense of a, a specific person that is distinguishable from what you would refer to as a liberal would it even be fair to call them conservatives at this point considering they are essentially yesterday's liberal now fighting a war for conserving what they ground they took <laughs> that's interesting but i think there are kind of at least two different groups under the I'm a liberal but. Like, there's Brett Weinstein, for instance, who is very clearly a liberal of 10 years ago and is just not on board the woke train, as you put it. 
And then there's someone like Dave Rubin, who insists he's a liberal <laughs> and spends 100% of his time attacking social justice warriors. Yeah, and yeah, putting forward libertarian and conservative ideas pretty much exclusively. Yeah. And so, so I'm not sure if they're like it started as two different groups or if it's just that the second group realized it would be tactically useful to appropriate the language of the sincere left behind liberals. But there are definitely at least two distinct types of people under that label now. So someone like Harvey Weinstein can still be a liberal, even though the accusations against him are bad or potentially illiberal. That doesn't really change his political stance. Weinstein or Brett Weinstein? Oh, I am totally fucking the uh, <laughs> oh, wrong Weinstein. Oh, that poor guy. That happens a lot. <laughs> I even, in my mind, I thought, okay, don't think of the wrong one. But yeah, he's and the evergreen one, not the rapey yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Brett Weinstein's history was, is interesting because he's, he's like in probably the top 1% of wokeness when it comes to... Uh, He's a professor in an extremely liberal, uh, I don't even know how to call it, an extremely woke university. Evergreen College doesn't even have grades. And I've met people from Evergreen and they they are intense when it comes to uh, political affiliations. It's hard to put them on a compass because they're just like so far out of whatever Overton window would be considered normal US politics. But he still got canceled from that group because of what he did <laughs> katie herzog has uh had a really good article kind of chronicling their story and how that shifted over time and of course she's canceled as well because of her uh, affiliations but yeah that's you're essentially identified the liberal progressive break then would you say it's fair to characterize anti-fascist and adjacent organizations as progressive more so than they are just straight liberal. I think that, that those terms have been, it feels like they just fell into a muddy pool and it's hard to figure out like where they are at this point or what, what contours they delineate. Because I remember from, from the Bush presidency, especially around the start of the Iraqi war, how pretty much everyone called themselves liberal. It didn't, there wasn't this distinction about what kind of liberal are you? It was pretty clear and it seemed, at least from my naive standpoint, a little more unified. Of course, there's always the fringe groups that kind of stand on the edge and, and yell, but it didn't, they didn't seem as prominent. And I'm not sure exactly if my recollection is faulty or that there was something more significant that shifted. And now I use, I still use the term liberal and progressive, but it's this kind of with, the, with an asterisk because I don't really know what it means. And it heavily depends on what context you're in. So progressive to me, I think of politicians, establishment politicians like Bernie Sanders. I would consider them progressive. Liberal is more of a broader penumbra that covers a whole host of things that isn't really definitive enough for, for most utilization. I think you can draw ask- reasonably clear lines if you say Democrat voter and then social justice pro or con. That seems, that seems, I think, more definitive because democratic voter has a different connotation than social justice. But that still leaves out someone like me who is nominally, generally a libertarian, libertarian that also is in favor of, I think, most 
social justice, depending on which ones you ask. And I've worked in that field, so I think I have like skin in the game. So when it comes to um, Antifa, I don't know to give you like a more a better definition of Antifa. It, there's people talk about Antifa as if it was a, a group with definitive values and mission a mission statement and a letterhead or some shit but it doesn't it doesn't work that way it's really just random people that mask up and with the goal of potentially engaging in violence uh it's often referred to as the black block because a significant portion of them are anarchists who like i said before believe in diversity of tactics when it comes to fighting fascism to me their their aims seem heavily misguided and they're they kind of just find fascism whenever they wherever they are yeah their uh, their target acquisition process could use some calibration yeah and there there's a lot of what i think are embarrassing stories such as this guy that showed up who's a bernie supporter he showed up to a rally in portland waving an american flag and because of the american flag he got coded as right wing which you know that's and like his right wing that means he's a fascist yeah, and he he got hit in the head with uh, with a pipe and was bleeding and ended up in the emergency room. And to me, I don't think there was enough um, distinguish distinguishing aspect going on where we say, "Hey, we're not okay with that," because any any form of criticism would be seen as uh, I keep using the word coded, but it would be coded as, "Oh, you're not part of our group anymore. Why are you why are you talking shit about your your proxy?" <laughs> I try to figure out what exactly people's motivations are when it comes to participating in, in these groups. Um, because in terms of where they're most active, it's like where you're talking about West coast cities, Seattle, Portland, especially, and Berkeley. It's like, if your if your goal is really rooting out fascism, however broadly you want to define it, it, it just seems kind of bizarre to focus on those areas. And almost always it's just like a few random uh, red tribers that stumble in kind of to want, want to make a stand. And then in response, you get literally hundreds of black block uh, folks coming up to resist or fight or whatever, whatever they do. And maybe it's uh, it's an instance of, there's probably a term for this, but it's an instance of if you, des- if you um, dedicate yourself to a specific mission, then your goal is to make that mission relevant and if you're living in Berkeley, it's quite frankly not very relevant. But whenever something comes that is even remotely close to your dedicated mission, then you kind of conjure up all these reserves of powers that you've had you've had uh, line in wait. I suppose the question is of uh, how much dedication is there really versus how much of it is social performance? Because you talk a lot, you talk about uh, your time with the John Brown John Brown Gun Club. That honestly sounds like it's got shipped together mission-wise quite a bit more so than any given chapter or gaggle of anti. What do you mean by shift mission-wise? Uh, it has a, They have their shit together. They actually present themselves as competent and, while not directly confrontational, they are making a stand and doing so looking properly like a militia, which is what a anti-fascist paramilitary is supposed to be, as I understand it historically. Right. And like uh, if you look at the actual origins of anti fascist groups, there were no pushovers. They were actually rather scrappy groups. Uh, with the rising tide of fascism, they went on quite a bit to become actual resistance paramilitary organizations 
that uh, the Allies worked with throughout the entirety of the war, if they survived. That's actually something that surprised me because um, in joining the John Brown Gun Club, I had to go through a vetting process. And I talk shit about Antifa extensively and explicitly. And I said, I don't, pre- I don't support street skirmishes. I think if you are identifying a threat that is so foundational as fascism, I think you need to respond proportionally. And uh, that's why I thought guns are proportionate to the threat. Well, that that makes, the, it still makes you an anti-fascist. Well, yeah, but, uh, but I wanted, to, I always made it explicit. I said, yes, I'm anti-fascist, but I'm not Antifa because Antifa comes with a whole lot of baggage that I did not want to be associated with. So I, I had a sticker that said I'm an anti-fascist, which I think is accurate, but Antifa implies a lot more than just being against fascism. And maybe not even that, like you said, like their target acquisition is completely off, at least in my opinion. So in joining that group, I I kind of had a glimpse in terms of how these uh, ancillary groups operate. And like I said, it's it's basically just random people that mask up and maintain their anonymity, uh, which is legal uh, in most states. And to me, it always seemed performative because I recall one instance where... um, there was a right-wing protest and the two sides were separated by a street and a police cordon, but one person still managed to throw a rock across the street and hit someone in the head. And a lot of people kind of saw that as a victory, which I still don't get because we don't know who this person is. They just got severely injured and it always, and again, I want to keep being charitable, but it, it always struck me as just bizarre because there was this backwards justification happening after the fact where you say, well, you know, like I'm okay with fascists getting hit. It's like, but you don't know who this person is. You don't know what their politics are. And even if you did, is this strategically sound? But any, any discussion, I think I was one of the few people that said anything remotely similar to that. It was limited because the John Brown gun club never, never engaged in that kind of violence. So it was more kind of how much do you want to explicitly disavow this affiliation and the costs of doing that were seen as too great because then you would potentially be seen as part of the out group instead of the in group. So it was kind of just kind of shrugged off and left alone, which is, I think it's fine on, on some aspect because we weren't heavily involved in it. I think you might be being a little overly charitable to either side, honestly. What do you mean by either side? You ever watch two troops of monkeys fight? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Where are you going with this analogy? Two groups, two mobs facing off against each other are not really in a high-minded state. Soccer hooligans, let's point it at that instead. That's probably more straightforward and requires less biology analogies. When they're going at it, there's no real high-minded ideal that's engaging in a relatively primal mode of thinking that goes all the way back to tribal standoffs. And before that, standoffs between rival troops and families. It's just straight tribalism at that point. This side of the line, our team. That side of the line, their team. If you look at it, like when these, uh, we were back in like the quote-unquote Battle of Berkeley. Like a lot of that was the back and forth, turned into a back and forth street brawl that looked a lot like a soccer hooligans going in. So I, I would say I'm an expert on hooliganism. Uh, or at least soccer hooliganism, because I watched the movie Green Street Hooligans from 2005. <laughs> and I, I respect, I think I have a greater appreciation for that kind of violence because it's more, less, what's the word I'm looking for? It's less dressed up. It's it's really just... It's honest. I like, yeah, it's honest. I like this team. You don't like this team. We're going to fight. That's That seems just like 
as basic as you can get. I think it's funny just how much of a history sports team riots have had, like the Nika riots. That yeah, I was just about to say. <laughs> like, I just read about that recently. What was it like? Thirty thousand people killed or something like that. Yeah, over... yeah, it almost, almost collapsed the Byzantine Empire early. Yeah, that's amazing to me. That's that's fascinating because this isn't a new. I think we just uh, kind of find different manifestations of it and. The the two tribes that are on one side, you have the Antifa and on the other, just like random red tribers that believe in freedom. And maybe some of them are actual Nazis and some of them are white nationalists. They're just really engaging in in street brawls, but dressed up with this theater of political affiliations that is almost irrelevant at that point. So I, I, I don't think I disagree with that characterization. I think that that is more honest. Yeah. At, at that point, when you're the actual on the ground activism, it probably makes more sense to look at it through the lens of two monkey troops. Uh, how that gets there, who gets there, all of that. That's more where those questions of charity and beliefs and ideology come into it a bit more. It would be interesting to have a member of Antifa justify, I guess, their their tactics, but do so with some pushback because the few times I've seen people interviewed, it's it's almost always been sympathetic journalists that do so. And the idea, and I understand why, because generally members of Antifa don't like talking to journalists unless they know that they have a receptive and sympathetic uh, interviewer. They're not really going to get that much pushback on, on that front. Maybe the closest was a podcast called Reveal. That would be an interesting conversation. Like, I do have friends who are in adjacent spaces. No one actually explicit black mask protester, but like generalized social justice activists talking to them about it and talking to them about Antifa and their being supportive of their. What was the what was that euphemism you used again? Diversity of tactics. Diversity of tactics. Yeah, I think they actually mentioned that now, thinking in hindsight. Their support of that, like a lot of it, wasn't really coming from any strict, principled stance in defense of political violence. It was more just uh, pragmatic acceptance, trying to keep peace within their own coalition. Well, I think there, there's a significant cost explicitly advocating for political violence, or at least the social cost outside of specific areas. People aren't necessarily, they may have sympathetic views on that matter, but they're not necessarily going to state it outright. Uh, so the podcast that I was th- talking about is uh, hosted by Al Letson, who's who's a black guy, and he was covering the Battle of Berkeley, I suppose. And at one point, this um, old white guy started getting, getting beat up by Antifa, and Al Letson kind of jumped in front of him and protected him and said, told everyone to stop. I think the optics of beating up a, a black reporter with red rocks was, was too much. So they did stop. And what was fascinating is the episode he had afterwards where he interviewed one member of Antifa and the person that he protected. And generally, like the member of Antifa was kind of annoyed and expressed their annoyance at Al Letson for jumping in. And he said that they got in the way of a community response and prevented it from being meted out. He was still pretty mad at me for stepping in and protecting Keith Campbell. He says they were targeting Keith for a reason. Really, I felt like you were standing in the way of a community response. They came for a fight. The community, through their representatives and all these organizations, mandated us to be the security for that and to protect them, to be the first line of defense and also to extricate those that would be wish to do them harm or to cause a scene or to, to rile them up. There was no regrets. We have no regrets. The only regret I have is that I didn't pull you off so we could finish on him. That was kind of like, I think, the closest 
to at least that I've encountered. Maybe there's been others. The closest uh, to uh, an interview with a member of uh, a proud member of Antifa that had pushback from from the host. That's an interesting justification. Just a pretty much straight up admission that it's vigilante justice. Well, yeah, I don't I don't think anyone disagrees that it's vigilante justice. Uh, the idea is that there's a gap of justice that isn't meted out. That's why you need street skirmishes to fill that gap. I don't I don't think there's any disagreement about that. Hmm. Even from supporters of of this movement would acknowledge that. Welcome aboard, civilized. I don't believe you've ever introduced yourself on air yet. <laughs> if he's there or not, he might be having some mic trouble yet. <laughs> Maybe if I can speak in French, uh, it will conjure up the spirit. <laughs> oh, there we go. We I heard something. Can you hear me? Yes. Bonjour. Bienvenue à The Bailey. Bonjour, merci. <laughs> so French is one of my native languages. That means we can talk shit about McMaster in 93. I, yeah, but then they'll go through Google Translate and it will ruin everything. <laughs> no, it'll be harder because it's audio. Yeah, I can't type that. Man. You're not talking behind <laughs> my back. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you, you speak French 93? Yeah. Okay. So we can talk shit about McMaster. Yeah, I was commenting on the name 93, which here kind of means, means bad boy, kind of. How does it mean bad boy? The hood. Le 9-3. Does that ring a bell or not at all? No, it doesn't. I didn't, I didn't no, grow up in France. Give us some context, you baguette okay. bastard. 9-3 um, is the number of de- the department, so like the whatever the county or whatever, Paris, where all the worst areas are. So is it like a suburb of Paris? Yeah, it's, um, it's the name of the areas nearest Paris in the north part. Yeah, it would be the suburbs in the north of Paris. Wow. So in 93, you have an alternate origin story. Mm -hmm. Okay. The criminal alter ego is set. And and so like 93 would be a common rallying flag in like rap songs or graffiti or stuff like that. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) It's like maybe a bit like, I don't know, East Coast or West Coast in the US. Stuff like that. More like East Side, West Side, North Side. Whatever side of the town you're rapping about is bad, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And then, okay. of course, a lot of people make fun of that because they're going to take, take random other uh, department numbers and like pretend that they're super badass and everything. Too. But this is relegated to anyway. just one, one department, yeah. not an entire coast. Yeah, which probably means the housing value of anything with that number is going to be pretty low. <laughs> okay. But yeah, back to Antifa. Yeah, do you want to say anything about Antifa? It seems that weirdly we don't really have it here in France. Is that true with uh, all of Europe or just France? Uh, there may be something like that in Germany. I haven't really researched it. But, I do know, like, whenever um, there's a G20 summit, uh, there's usually some black-clad anarchists running around. Blocks, which is... Yeah, the, so that's, uh, there's not a big culture of it in France, then? Oh, there... I mean, France is kind of notorious for demonstrations that sometimes turn violent, as you might have seen in the news. <laughs> that whole gilet jaune thing. Mm-hmm. But not the Antifa brand itself. I don't think it's unusual to have a different brand, but the general tactics in present in American Antifa, are they present in France? Oh, yeah, those are. Okay. So it's just a different brand. It, it's the same thing, but just under a different name. And I think without the um, anti-fascist, that aspect isn't really put forward. What's the general target of, uh, what would you call it, the black bloc? Anarchists, yeah, black blocs. Black bloc is the most common terms, and... We use that that term in the United States as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the whole term of black bloc tactics. It's more like anarchists, clean people who are there to break stuff. So they're They're a little bit bit more straightforward in their terminal goal then? They're not so much there in response to fascism and curtailing of fascism. It's more in uh, 
direct advocacy of uh, anarchism? I don't think that there's this whole, yeah, discourse around opposing faces. Well, there is some of it, but it isn't as put forward. Black blocks tends to be a mix of various different groups who use the same tactics because black blocks is more of a term for the tactics, but don't, don't necessarily agree with each other. What do you think their motivations Race are? Or, or because their they're against are? society as a whole and are just going to be banks or whatever because they're angry about stuff. And this would be like the typical G20 protesters have some clear political demands or whatever, or just like are the most angry of whatever movement is going on. What would you say there? What's your opinion on their strategy? Oh, I don't like them. I mean, of course, um, the whole the whole go in the street and break stuff is pretty ridiculous. Do you think that there's a disagreement about the tactical usefulness of their uh, antics or yes? Or they know that it's... The impression I get, I get is they, they either don't have demands or don't have any clear things that they want. They're so outlandish that they have no snowball chance in the hell of actually being true. And it just looks like a cheap excuse for going out and breaking stuff. I'm happy and I don't want to show that they're unhappy. But it's... Okay. Well, how representative of is... Uh... Your opinion among the French? Oh, hard to tell. Like, in the are, the, are the black bloc romanticized in your media? Yeah, they are in, in the media. Not too much. No, no, the media is pretty uh, on Reddit, on places like that. A bit. That whole like all cops are bastard thing, which is which in France would be tout le monde déteste la police. Everybody hates the police. Yeah, whenever people ask me about ACAP, I just say it's all cats are beautiful. <laughs> I, I always uh, when I whenever I see it's, uh, some someone that I start thinking, wait, assigned what at birth? You're talking about AFAB, right? Uh, yeah, probably. Like assigned female at birth. Like a something a b for me yeah. uh, it, it recalls assigned something at birth and i tried to figure out okay which which one is this one exactly <laughs> uh, look it up on google and see that oh yeah it's that yeah it's kind of interesting hearing you talk about how it's more straightforwardly identified as hooliganery versus in the u.s yeah. right now there's antifa almost feels kind of new like it came out of nowhere following the trump administration i think part of that is there's no strong tradition of just generalized i mean there probably is but not in like the, the popular memory of large-scale anarchist demonstration. It's often treated to glowing op-eds in newspapers and journals. There's a, there's a good contrast between, for example, uh, groups like the Weather Underground and uh, Bader Meinhof in Germany, and how the latter had much more widespread support, especially among uh, university students. I think the polling was something around 30 to 40 percent. And they could count on whenever they were eluding uh, law enforcement, they can count on finding a lot of sympathetic actors that could harbor them and shelter them for the night. Yeah, why did the left stop blowing stuff up? Was it like a blog post that was called Days of Rage that documented all the crazy, insane antics that happened around the 60s and 70s, such as I think like the Puerto Rican separatists that invaded Congress <laughs> with guns. Like everyone forgets about that. And there were a lot more bombings happening, a lot more bank robberies, a lot more uh, police officers getting killed. The trigger nowadays seems a lot lower, whereas that was more normalized, at least from exposure. It's, it's really hard to get a feeling about these kind of things because you don't really get, you don't get the actual feeling on what's actually happened, but it's more filtered by the media. So it's you're you're gonna get the feeling of how much it's reported, you know, right. conspiracy and, by the media. It's just uh, and you have uh, the 1968 student, um, what would you call it, the student riots of 1968 in France? We call it 1968. Yeah, you just say 1968, and everyone knows what you're talking about. As opposed to the 1969 riots. Sorry, oh. go ahead. I'm just kidding. Was that a joke or? <laughs> yes, that was a joke. I'm implying that uh, every year has its riots. Right. <laughs> by the way, are the yellow vests still going? I think so. I have. Right, they, they have been like 
slowly losing in relevance. And it's, it's uh, you know, earlier I was telling saying about how the Antifa don't really have clear demands. There's also a bit of an aspect, or not, not the Antifa, sorry, the um, black blocks in France. There's a bit of um, an aspect going on there where say that they have no demands, but I haven't actually got and spoken to them. So I'm relying on like indirect information. It could also be that the kind of thing that they would say that they actually have demands, but the media is just pretending that they are just a bunch of stupid hooligans going on. And it's hard for me to evaluate how true that is. I think one of the easiest things is for groups to make a press release saying, here are our demands. And that would be the, uh, the front-loaded message that you would want to get across. And that's been my experience when I see Antifa groups around here. When they do, they have Facebook page, they have Twitter accounts, they, they know how to get their message across. And I don't think there's been confusion about where they stand. Well, maybe yeah, not on, on your side, but the, the black blocks are a bit more like there are a bunch of several different groups that might be black block, but don't really have a lot of public presence. I wonder if this is an aspect of more rigorous free speech protections in the United States that allows these forms of assemblies to occur. You can, you can publish your own manifesto here if you want. Yeah, but so no, but I also think it's people that's it's not free speech issues. They don't want to be uh, connected to the people actually breaking stuff, just throwing rocks at the police or uh, breaking banks or stealing shit. And of course, nobody wants to actually have their name associated with that kind of thing. Hmm. You have a sort of orderly demonstration going on with people who, who do have explicit demands but aren't going around breaking stuff. And on the side of that, you have a bunch of people in black that are breaking stuff. The main demonstration people will say, oh, no, they have nothing to do with us. Because when a random person, when a, one of the black bloggers guys get caught, then maybe half the time he is actually also a demonstrator of the other thing. They're going to pretend he doesn't have anything to do. Well, I don't know. It's a bit it's hard to figure out how much is really hooliganism versus how much is people being more extreme in pushing for their position to be heard, but not coming out to take so like if the yellow vests go out and break more stuff then they'll be listened to so everybody can say oh yeah if you break stuff people will listen to you even though sort of official spokespeople of the yellow vest will say oh no this has nothing to do with us so that would probably be maybe the best steel man of the argument in favor of breaking shit it's it's a way of um, garnering attention oh yeah and that's that's a frequent comments that made is that people are kind of frustrated they're saying oh yeah well we've been complaining for so much time but nobody cares and now those guys go break stuff and people listen to them so maybe yeah we should go break stuff too so it's kind of disheartening that you can't you can't articulate what their demands are then even in spite of their breaking of things well i mean the yellow vests the yellow vest had a bit also of the issue of the inarticulate demand, even though they were more explicit, but they also had this sort of direct democracy grounds up thing going on. Yeah, I remember was, reading their list of demands and a lot of it was contradictory. Right. Yeah, it was sort of like every little group everywhere would build their own demand and they would try to vote on them or bring things together and they would just collect a bunch of... Let's say Civilite, what's your best attempt at distilling what their stance is. Mostly that they don't like the current government. They don't like the attempts to liberalize. The most core feeling for me is mostly anti-Macron policies. And they feel that they're being, I guess, sacrificed. Personally, don't really care for like this whole the environment protection thing. Like it would be the, I guess, rural, rural, rural middle class doesn't that's going to have to pay more for taxes. And they're sort of feeling that will get shafted in the whole process. It's also just anybody who is unhappy for any reason, which is not very hard to find. It's just to go, go out and, and feel united with that. You start asking for why people are not happy, then that's a question for psychologists. I mean, it's, it's always a challenge to individualize people's grievances when you're talking about a mass movement. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, because I mean, we, actually, pe- people are happy for a lot of different reasons, and there's one uh, one reason also. I think the yellow vest thing is not as explicit about its motives. Is that a lot of the sentiment is far right, and part of the, them are uncomfortable with that aspect, so they're kind of downplaying it. So there's this sort of sentiment that's actually the yellow vest is far right anti-immigrant, but let's not talk too much about that, or it will turn people away from us. I mean, I wouldn't be or surprised like, if saying uh... that. Oh yeah, actually, the yellow vest. I don't really trust them. I suspect that they're actually all Marine Le Pen supporters, stuff like that. Well, I wouldn't be surprised that whenever you have a mass movement like the Yellow Vest, people are just going to latch on like barnacles and say, oh yeah, like this, this is in support of my point or my pet issue. Yeah. <laughs> and it's much easier to get a platform when you're on the coattails of another larger movement. Yeah, well, well I mean, part of the movement's strength, strength comes from the fact that it's pretty vague about what it wants because like that, people like recognize themselves in it. Doing characters that are more identifiable than something with really identifying features. Yeah, watching the yellow vests as they were developing, it was kind of entertaining to see the reactionary and leftist personalities that I follow trying to claim ownership of the movement as it's ongoing. Yes, right. That and also watching individual factions within the movement go at it times as well. I think they kind of died off a bit with the recent European election. That's a feeling I had because they tried field and it was a huge failure and they then they had whatever they actually there was some kind of yellow vest ish score that had a like 0.1% or something like that. Yeah, how did the uh, European elections shake out for France? I know they the whole Brexit shenanigans in the UK, there was uh, quite a bit of hubbub about that. But yeah. I'm curious about what it looked like in France. Well, there was the whole noise about how Marine Le Pen's party ended up first, which was, I don't know, widely decried as a very bad sign, even though I think to recall that that's also what happened last elections. So uh, there was also a bit of, um, I don't know, exaggerating how surprising that was. <laughs> that's beautiful. Basically, the, the European elections aren't that easy to get excited about because you can't really think about what kind of government co- coalitions are going to be formed, stuff like that, because everybody's just going to European Parliament and then it's going to happen over there. So you don't have a result right away in terms of political coalitions and all that. Like, if you have a normal parliamentary election, then once it's done, you're going to say, oh, such and such has, has 30% and those have 13% and the others have 8%, so maybe they will form a coalition or it could be that and you can, like, speculate on that kind of stuff. But it's much harder to do that with the European elections because you have a zillion small parties each in their own country and you have no idea how, which kind of coalitions they'll do and whatever coalition they'll do will be very have a very indirect effect on party politics in the countries. Nobody's really paying much attention European level political coalitions. I actually haven't finished sorting that out yet. So it's very much kind of almost back burner, especially after it happens, I suppose. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, oh. because it's hard to it's hard to find some exciting hot takes to have about it. So it's going to be in the news, so it's not very covered in the news, apart from the fact that they haven't still haven't agreed on who's going to be president of the commission and who's going to be president of the parliament and who's going to be president of whatever. The media can't survive without hot takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or you, you can do a lot of like on is this side going to lie with that side the way you have on the parliamentary elections we should probably move on to another topic except we don't have much <laughs> well there's uh, a bit about busing right i did not i did not watch the debates so i need to i watched like an hour of each debate and neither of them were very good well how do you define very good so the first debate was basically no one disagreed about everything they all ran on a platform of I am a generic Democrat and that went on for a very long time and I don't, just don't think anyone caught anything out of that. So when you say very good, uh, is it from an entertainment standpoint, information standpoint, 
distinguishing standpoint? Any standpoint. I think the only person who was happy with the first night debate was Donald Trump, who got a really good piece of material for some attack ads. To elaborate on that, there was a moment, I think it was in the first night debate, when the moderator said something like, put your hand up if your health care plan will cover illegal immigrants, and everyone put their hand up. And that is for certain going to be in an attack ad come 2020. I wonder how much thought they gave before putting their hands up. Yeah, maybe that was just a peer pressure moment. Who knows? Yeah, you just look around the room. It's like, oh, is this within the Overton window? Okay, I'll do it. And that's a, the typical problem that the kind of things you say to get to win the primary are not the kind of things you would want to say to win the main election. Yeah, I've, I found it interesting that the moderators pushed the debate in that direction because if they had just not asked the question, I don't think it hurts any of the candidates because they all agreed anyway, but it definitely hurts them come the real election for them to be on record saying something pretty far to the left like that. And so it seems like the moderators were not acting in the best interests of the Democratic Party, which was interesting. Well, I, I was just thinking uh, illegal immigrants are entitled to a public school education. I think that's a matter of Supreme Court precedent. So being entitled to health care is not that far off. Well, uh, there's a substantially different incentive problem that free health care creates versus free schooling. Th- that's fair. But in terms of how shocking it is, I suppose. And it, I don't think they, I don't think they discuss the details of what healthcare they would be in favor of. Uh, that could just mean, yes, I, I think they should be allowed to go to a hospital if they want to, but they would still be in favor of it. I don't know. Did, it, did the question even cover funding or? Oh God, no. It was about expanding a plan to illegals, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, but the, that's, I think that's a confusing aspect because like, what plan are we talking about? Are we talking about Medicaid or, uh, I'm sorry, Medicare? It was talking about, your, does your proposed plan for health care cover illegal immigrants? That could just mean they should be legally allowed to purchase health insurance, right? Well, a lot of them were going for state-sponsored health care, in which case, I see. not so much. So the presumption is that state-sponsored health care would also cover that. Got it. Yeah, the, the debates, like that was the best moment of it, but in general, the debates were a good example of the problem where the Democratic Party is not in favor of open borders. They're just opposed to everything else. I wish that this wasn't the case, but I'd like to hear more of a definitive pronouncement of what the immigration policy of the Democratic Party is, if it's not open borders. Because personally, I am in favor of open borders, but generally what I've seen play out is we don't like what Trump is doing. And the retort is, okay, so what do you support? And it's just kind of this like, eh, I, I don't know, like we like immigrants, but maybe not too many. Usually comes down to the uh, lack of border enforcement coupled with a lack of immigration enforcement for people who do get through. So it kind of shakes out as a de facto open borders. I understand that characterization. It's uh, we don't necessarily want to change the law, but we don't like how it's enforced. And ideally, we want to pare back enforcement to the point of functionally changing the law. But we're not going to say that, which doesn't lead necessarily to a coherent argument or platform. So the first night debate, uh, it's there were 20 people at the debates total, and they broke them into two nights of 10 people each because obviously 20 people would be insane. 10 people was still kind of insane, and they broke them up randomly, or so they claim. I'm, it's not that it looked particularly unrandom, it's just 
I am cynical enough to think that someone might fudge that for whatever reason. Anyway. Uh, so the goal the goal was to break it up randomly. One real candidate and then nine of those candidates who are polling at like 1%. And then the second night's debate was four real candidates and a bunch more no names. So the goal was to ostensibly keep it balanced. And I think they had a cutoff poll of numbers of 5% or something something equally low. Uh, and you had to poll at 1% in at least mm-hmm. two different polls and you had to have something like 20,000 or maybe it was 50,000 individual donations. Right. So that was the base minimum to be in the debates at all. But in terms of splitting it up, they did try to try to keep it somewhat balanced in the sense that, uh, not every high polling candidate would end up in one debate, but that ended up happening anyway, because their threshold for, what is considered a high tier or a low tier candidate was so low. The first night's debate had, well, like part of the reason that everyone agreed is that no one is going to attack one of the no-name one percenter candidates because what are you going to do? You're going to shave half a percent off their vote and get it for yourself. And the second Just kicking night puppies is, at that point. Yeah, the second night is with four real candidates on stage is why we got into stuff like the busing attacks. Uh, let's stay civilized. Are you, uh, do people care about the democratic primaries in, uh, in France? I've never seen them mentioned in the news. We did get more news about them back when there was a Trump primaries, I guess probably later in the primaries process. How many uh, people on this call were aware of what busing was before the debate? Was. I knew of it. I said I was aware of it. I didn't know the exact status of it. Is it something that went on? It was canceled. It was. Uh... I was curious about that too because it, 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 it's not an issue that came up. I I do recall kind of the vociferous uh, reaction it had in the seventies and eighties when it was implemented, where uh, essentially for anyone that's not familiar, uh, you had Brown versus Board of Education that desegregated uh, public schooling in the United States. Afterwards, you had a, another Supreme Court uh, decision that acknowledged that while the de jour schools were desegregated, the fact, though, they still are because of migratory and housing patterns that are distinguished along racial lines. So this is where white people live in separate neighborhoods than black people. And as a result, the school districts that they're part of are, in effect, segregationist. So the Supreme Court of the United States kind of said, you know, one way you can deal with this is by having mandatory busing. And then a bunch of lower federal courts started saying, okay, this is what the Supreme Court said. Let's let's have uh, mandatory busing to kind of keep this proportioned. It got a lot of pushback, especially from white families. But the kind of the implementation was still to me is bizarre. I don't, I don't know how this was even seen as acceptable uh, because it, it mandated that families, uh, if they wanted to send their kids to school, they could be on a bus up to, to go to a school up to an hour away just to kind of fill this quota of let's make sure to pack as many racially diverse families together as we can so that it's roughly proportionate to the area at large. Yeah, and, it, was, it was a equality of opportunity program before it was cool or equality of outcome of a program before it was cool, I should say. One part that's interesting to me, and this is from like very brief research on into this issue, is that it probably exasperated the 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 segregationist migratory patterns. Because if you were in the same school district, then you would be susceptible to being bust. But if you move out of that school district, maybe move into the suburbs, then busing does not apply to you anymore. So it probably 
had some encouragement for white families to leave areas altogether because they didn't want to be part of this mandatory integration system. And I think the Supreme Court sort of acknowledged that because they had a series of uh, decisions over the years that said, well, you know, we don't have to have busing so long as uh, districts can prove that they're unitary and in, in that they have gotten rid of segregation completely and more or less tried to achieve integration. And then you have a series of federal decisions that say, yeah, it looks like they did. And kind of people just kind of forgot about that at, at that point around the around the 90s. So I don't think it's in effect anymore. And I don't I think something going on implicitly where the Supreme Court just acknowledges that was a shitty idea. Let's not do it again. Let's just kind of forget about it. That's why it was surprising that it even came up in the Democratic primaries, because to me, it just seems insane that someone is seriously advocating to bring it back. Yeah, what surprised me is the nostalgic attitude being expressed towards it. It wasn't even particularly popular with black families. Like It definitely, it, it arguably contributed to white fr- flight, but it's not exact. It's not like there was a grassroots demand for it among the black community either. So to give some context on how much opposition it has, I see two polls that are cited. One is a Gallup poll that says um, that lists support for busing at around 9% for black families and 4% for white families. However, I think the way they phrase it is, do you think busing is the best method of integrating schools? And I think it from that question, I think it's not surprising that it has such low support. I saw another poll that lists busing support around 70% against for white families and 50% against for blacks. So it's I'm not really sure which one is the more reliable, but that's that's the context provided to me. That's still relatively terrible by social program standards. Yeah, that's fair. It wasn't a pushback necessarily. It was just, here's what the numbers Yeah, thank you for the contextualization there. I wasn't trying to give you a hard time. I, was, I even talked to, again, a few, most of my friends who are activists are white people who are fully disconnected from any of this context and just found out about it during the debates as well. I uh, came across it in passing through college courses. Uh, but a good friend of mine comes from a poor black background. I talked to her about it. And I even her family was never very big on it either. It was uh, from the way she talked about it. She didn't want to go too deep into detail on it, but she did mention that it was uh, a severe pain in the ass for her relatives who did uh, were involved in busing programs. Like it, it, it didn't improve any of their lives for the people who went through it. The the whole busing the discussion kind of illustrates this um, wrench thrown into gears of racial integration, where you have a limited tool set where you can force. You can, for example, at least in the United States context, you can prohibit uh, segregationist covenants attached to property where uh, if you sell a house, you're mandated to only sell it to a specific race, which was the case in a lot of neighborhoods in in the United States before that was struck down as unconstitutional. You can try to do all these things, but (laughs) it's like nature finds a way, not in the sense that being racist or segregationist isn't natural or right. Maybe it is natural, but in the sense that if people have this preference, they they try to, they'll find a way to enact it. And you still see heavily, heavy segregation in the United States along racial lines, even though it's... Well, define segregation first. So I'm not talking about legal segregation. I'm talking about how people separate themselves into like groups. That's what I mean by segregation in this context. Okay. And what do you consider to integration to be? Racially diverse groups. I think maybe the best illustration is looking at census maps and seeing there's a project where there's census maps that are color coded according to race. 
and you pick a city like Washington, D.C., and you can see almost by, or Detroit, you can see by the street how much of a hard barrier almost it is. Which side is the black side and which side is the white side? Or which neighborhood is the Asian one? Which one is the Latino one? There's cer- certain patterns that are not surprising. Like Chinatowns are almost invariably all majority Asian. And New York is kind of hard to parse out just because it's so dense. But other other cities are, are easier to see where, easier to tell where the racial divides are. Eight Mile Road in Detroit is pretty stark in terms of where the white families live and where the black families live. There were those like models by Thomas Chan. I think the thing with the coins where you showed that even a, like a weak preference for living nearer to people like you mm-hmm. would eventually lead to segregated areas. Yes, yeah, so you don't need to have a strong preference for like-minded groups for it to eventually settle into this equilibrium that is heavily segregated. All it takes is a very minor one. I'm not entirely sure if segregation is the right word or if we might have different definitions of the term. That's possible. Uh, what's what's your concern with that term? Well, I work in an office for a construction company. There's around 20 people there. 19 of them are white people of European descent and one Filipino. Is our office segregated? Talking about segregation is going to depend on context, like what the th- threshold is, what the criteria is. So if you can propose a different definition, I'm all ears. I just use it to mean specifically separation of where people live based on racial lines. And separation can also be debated. So I'm with McMuster in that your definition feels weird to me because generally segregation to me implies not just just that there is a difference, but that it is an enforced difference in some substantial way. Like... If it happens to be the case that people have a preference for living next to others like them and they make housing decisions accordingly, that is substantially different kind of segregation than if all the houses can only be sold to white people. Yeah, because I would consider I would consider my workplace to be segregated if we threw out every black application, whereas in reality, we give every black application an interview because we actually need them to uh, qualify for certain programs with our government. So, so generally the, the concern with the term segregation is that it implies a top-down or intention behind it, right? Yep. Okay, that's fair. And I think I'm in agreement with that. Uh, however, how would you describe... Uh, if it's due to preference, I would hazard to call it self-segregation. So it's still segregation. It just has a different origin, right? To an extent, but that's also involved a certain level of enforcement or intentionality. Like in a lot of immigrant communities, you talk about like immigrant ghettos and France, like that's a clear cut example of people self-segregating into those communities. So if I say, if I use the term self-segregation, is that objectionable? Fine to me. Yeah, it works. Okay. Noted. So Back to busing for a moment. What is the intended positive effect of it? Is the premise that the white schools will be better and have more money spent on them, so we want to send the black kids there? Or is it that just having all black and all white schools is inherently worse than having mixed race schools somehow? The I think it's the former. And I think it's I think it's both. So one concern is that you you can say that legally you're not allowed to segregate uh, schooling, but you're still going to have these disparate outcomes and uh, sources of funding as well as quality, depending on who uh, which demographic is being served by the institution. So the idea is that schools in white neighborhoods tend to be better 
because there's more resources allocated to them, whether explicitly or informally, for example, through booster programs that privately raise funds for uh, programs. So the idea is to kind of get rid of that because disproportionately to get more resources and more attention. And you can try to legally mandate that everything gets funded the same way, but it's impossible to account for every single source of funding. So one way to do it is just to force people together. They're still going to do what they're going to do in terms of seek the most amount of resources for their school. And the idea is that they can't help but benefit everyone that is within that school. So that's one argument for forced busing. As you get people together, they're still going to seek resources for their school, but it's going to have the knock-on effect of also benefiting people that would otherwise have been ignored without the scheme. For me, what I would expect the, the argument would also be that it's a way of encouraging social, I guess, a bit more social harmony or social context. You don't want to have, as a society, it's not healthy to have different groups that don't interact very much with each other. Well, that's not what happened is the issue. But I mean, you can you can crit- critique the effectiveness of it, but that's that's separate from whether the intent is noble, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think busing might be a particularly bad example of actually doing that. But uh, on the topic of segregation, if I kind of like the way Singapore did it by having all the social housing by ethnic group so that people could not, even if they wanted to, they could not self-segregate. Yeah, that's actually clever to an extent. Wait, how did they do it? Social housing. If you want to have social housing, then there's going to be quotas per ethnic group. So, oh, so the, Sing- Singapore has quotas for uh, its public housing? My understanding of it is that like most housing in Singapore is public housing, uh, like a, a lot of it is, and that there are quotas so that there is no area with all the Chinese people here and all the Indian peoples over there. They all have to live in the same building. There's something that makes me deeply uncomfortable with any form of mandated integration. There's one aspect that first has to classify the groups into discrete categories in order to determine whether there is disparate segregation or self-segregation going on. And then it has to pick what I see as an almost arbitrary characteristic to to be the end-all be-all metric for whether something is integrated or not. So we focus a lot on race because it's culturally relevant, but there's so many different ways that people can self-segregate along lines. Sure, but in in, uh, in Asia, the like in Singapore specifically, the relationship of the Chinese with the Malay and with the various Indian immigrants was a huge political topic. Yeah, and you can, for public housing, you can nail down where the enclaves are forming relatively reliably. And this just seems more like an an anti-enclave measure within the public policy. If this were applying to, say, just renting or purchasing property, then yeah, that'd be be extra special sketchy. But by itself for... Just uh, applying for government services from at least a consequentialist perspective, like I, from the libertarian perspective on its own, it's probably not. It's a little sketchy, but uh, outcome wise, it seems smart. It's true that it would be seem weird, especially I think in France, because uh, Yassine saying, uh, was saying it made him un- uncomfortable, the whole thing of categorizing people. But in France, uh, it's you don't have any statistics on people. It's illegal to collect those statistics, I think, for the government. Because last time we had statistics, they were used to help the Nazis round up the Jews. New law saying were no statistics on ethnic groups or religion and all that. Yeah, so that's a fascinating um, aspect of um, French law that explicitly prohibits uh, racial categorization. And it was uh, enacted after World War II. I, w- I would be curious to see how well that works uh, because that's, that's, such, that's so different from what the United States does. 
where race is enshrined in law in so many different aspects and not even well categorized or well collected because you have these five racial categories that are arbitrary. They have the whole question of the Hispanics that are kind of maybe... Yeah, well, there's five... race that was invented by our Census Bureau. Class. Well, yeah, the and interesting I, I... thing with Hispanics is that based on the census data in southern U.S., you can see that some Hispanics are actually changing identification to white on the census. Like, the same per people who were polled in 2000 as Hispanic are now registering as white, which kind of highlights how hopeless the categorization is. Well, 93, I don't know if you're aware, but you can be both under the categorization because race is what white is a race and Hispanic is an ethnicity in uh, in government forms in the United States. Uh sorry, it's not white then. It's the people are no longer checking Hispanic and they are checking whatever the white ethnicity not, is. Oh. I think the other one is just not Hispanic and Hispanic white. It's an ad, essentially. You can do um, a cross-section to see what percent of people that identify as Hispanic and what their racial breakdown is by race. And it's kind of all over the map because I think a lot of people maybe have the same sort of confusion that is similar to how I approach it because I'm an Arab and technically, according to federal government standards, I'm white because white means the people of Europe... The Middle East and the Caucasus region, so that covers a way a whole range of of ethnicities under one rubric. That I think colloquially doesn't really make sense because I don't think anyone in common parlance calls Arabs white. They're, they're called Arabs or you know Muslims if you if you want a shorthand that is not entirely accurate. So whenever I I approach the race question, I always put other because I don't know what to put. I can also put African America because I was born in Africa and grew up there, but that doesn't really make sense either. Even though technically it's more correct, I'm more African than a lot of Black people in America. Uh, but that's not going to get me very far. Yeah, I heard of some people from South Africa, some white guys from South Africa who would like to check African American. I have a friend yeah. who's from. I have a friend whose family's from Guyana. But their family went to Guyana from India several generations ago. So I wonder what she texts on the box. I'm going to ask her about that. I mean, this has got to be, this has to be frustrating for a lot of people because it's not clear unless you have a preordained, I mean, if, if you're, if your ancestors are former slaves and you've lived in the South the whole time, it's, and you're, you look black and that's how you identify. That's pretty easy to categorize yourself. If you're of European descent, that's also very easy. But I imagine a lot of Hispanics and people of Latino descent probably don't know what to put because race is a separate category. Yeah. Civilized. I am curious how effective, um, or if it's even an objective, I don't know. Is there any penetrance from that uh, legal standard of not distinguishing people by race into the cultural context, people's just perception of others? I don't think so. People are still categorized as black, Arab, or others equivalent to that. There's Gulua, Gaulish, like from Gaul, ancient Gaul. Yeah, I know. I know Gauls. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, but, Rome's um, conquered them. Yeah, the people clearly still categorize each other those ways, Asian, whatever. Right, as in the U.S. However, like, words like race or ethnicity aren't really used and are kind of dirty. Even using the word race is kind of, like, frowned upon. Weird. Hmm. I'll just plug another interesting podcast. It's uh, 
NPR's Rough Translation. They had an episode on the evolution of uh, how you refer to blacks in, Fran- in the French language. And it started off by, I didn't know this, but the word for ghostwriter in French is the equivalent of nigger in American. That's nigger. Yeah, yeah nigger. Yeah. Like the, the same kind of derogatory term that you would use to call a black person in France, nègre, has more or less the same connotation as nigger. And was it a term for ghostwriters first, or was it a racial slur first? Alexander Dumas and civilized, feel free to correct me, but Alexander Dumas is of black descent. And he's the author behind the, the Three Musketeers, and he had a lot of um, ghostwriters working for him, I think after he got famous. And so they referred to his ghostwriters as nègre because it was by proxy you the same way that you would like get black people to work in your plantation in the French colonies. It's like, oh, you do all the work, but you get none of the credit. So that's the idea behind it. Wow. Civilized, is that correct? Um, I hadn't heard about the link with Alexandre Dumas, but uh, the general terminology, I think, yeah, somebody's going to do dirty work for you and get no credit. However, I'd say that the... It's probably closer to the English Negro in that it's not originally particularly a slur. It's just a descriptive term. Again, like English Negro sounds like a slur today because it sort of calls back to the older days where we're not the same as they are today. Yeah, Negro doesn't have the same punch as, as nigger in American, but it's like within kind of the same area. Uh, but, then, but then there was this um, kind of debate over using noir, which is the, the French word for black versus the English word black, and it gets confusing when I talk like this, but French people using the word black to refer to themselves, like je suis black, whether that That was kind of odd. Yeah. Well, they do that a lot. Like they try to adopt like, ah, c'est cool to say cool or le weekend or email. But what's, what's interesting about the French language is there's a, a government institution that mandates what Lang- what proper French is, and that has a, a significant amount of sway. I should let Civilized talk about this because you know a lot more than I do. Uh, you're, well, you're right. I mean, there's the, the Académie Française who is supposed to decide on which new words get introduced to the official dictionaries. Like, supposedly it has its official role, yet in practice, language words sort of bubble up on their own. But they, they, there were some words that were pushed down in a top-down way that kind of stuck. Yeah, so people were using email for a long time, just the English word email. And then the Académie Française says, no, you're supposed to say courriel, which is a concatenation of courrier and électronique. Uh, but I don't know, does anyone say courriel? Oh, nobody does. <laughs> a few people will occasionally do and everybody else will kind of snigger at them. But sometimes the word it pushes, this is like a typical example of one that didn't catch on. Like I think informatique uh, was sort of a top-down introduction for computer science. That, that one kind of worked. There are a few other like that. Like, I think that's probably one that didn't have much competition. It's fascinating to see language evolve as it naturally does. And then this bureaucracy try to like stamp on it and like have an iron grip on what people use and how well that works. About the black thing, yeah, it's it's a bit of a suburb. Uh, I kind of ghetto speak, but one that's pretty became pretty common. A way of being sounding a bit rougher using English words instead of using French words. I'm curious if there's another language that has a top-down management system the same way that French does. Chinese had their whole top-down reform of the language. Japanese did too. Japanese, yeah, I think it's pretty big on that. Like they have this list of officially mandated characters that are, yeah, they had a bunch of reforms on that. Chinese, uh, Chinese too. Like there's a whole simplification. At one moment, I think the, the Mao's government was actually pushing to eliminate Chinese characters. 
So just use the phonetic writing, right opinion. There was too much, too much pushback on that. Yeah, the grip of the Japanese seems stronger than the one of the French. Uh, so parallel to that question, I would also be curious to see if there is uh, examples of successful racial inc- say, integration that's been imposed top down that is sustainable. I, I, in France, I'm thinking of the way the, um, the and an example that's often given here is that the French government has worked very hard to integrate first the various regional identities like the Breton, the Auvergnat, the Méridionaux, etc. Originally, everybody was speaking like their own dialect, own area, and the French sort of. I mean, there's a thing, the invention of France, Frenchman, I think, wasn't that something by Fieber or something like that? Uh, but there was this whole work, a uh, strong work of using the power of the state to push everybody to actually be a Frenchman, use the French laws, norms, etc., uh, which worked, which is now, and it worked, the French, it worked stronger in France than it, it did in like Spain, didn't go that far. Now they have to deal with uh, the Catalonia. The kind of, same kind of thing wouldn't really happen in France, in France proper. Corsica is its own thing, but in France proper, that kind of thing was pushed. And that's why there's less regional identity than there is in like Spain or, of course, the UK or in uh, German. The uh, dialect is more homogeneous in the country itself. So you could say those were integrated pretty well though it's not really racial integration. And then there was the um, all diverse immigrants. Well, you have the same story in the States of the Italians, the, Spain, the Spanish, the Greeks, immigrated and integrated into France, are considered as models of integration, and that's models that should be followed, followed for the Arabs and the Africans now. I guess the, the more successful integration happens, the less people remember the dividing lines. Maybe that will happen like uh, in a few generations. That's, that's what uh, the optimists optimist think. Kind of seems plausible to me, like intermarriages are pretty high. The the Arabs have the advantage of being, as you were saying, white, which means that after a few generations of intermarriage, etc., they're from the population, which means it makes it a bit harder to have and clear identities. Like if somebody wants, wants to kind of switch identity, they kind of give their kid a, a less Arabic sounding name. And I know people like that. Being ambiguous, which for me is a pretty good thing. Wait for things to settle down, eventually be a bit more, a bit less uh, split by uh, these kind of tensions. That's easier if you don't have open borders, I guess. Back to the earlier topic. How does the uh, American immigration debate look like in France? Like, is it any in any way comparable to your atti- guys' attitudes towards borders and immigration? Uh, hard to tell. Hard to tell. I don't. I don't really know of any really good comparison because basically a lot of people kind of hate and despise Trump for very understandable reasons. So they're not going to be very nice on him on that aspect. I don't know. I, I, I hear kind of different takes from very different sides because some people are fully supportive of Trump's approach to closing the barrier because there's this whole reputation of Mexico with crime. So of course that makes sense. So is there an effect of uh, poisoning the well where people might be in support of Trump's immigration policy, but they don't want to say it because they don't want to be seen as in support of Trump? Maybe. Yes, Trump is pretty associated to the far right here, to Marine Le Pen, who probably get judged by this by the same standard and generally are considered to have the same kind of views. I don't think there would be, like, basically the people who would support Trump would already be for the wall and the people who would oppose Trump would be... Uh, hard to tell. I, I think the Europeans would probably be a bit more anti-immigration than the Americans. They would all, the kind of people who would be anti-immigration would also often be anti-American too. So uh, That's an interesting cross-section. <laughs> I, we have the whole refugee things, we have people fleeing war, and it seems that in comparison, the kind of immigration from Mexico is just... Yeah, the discussion on, the, on that in France is mostly focused on more on criticizing Trump. I see. Well, that's kind of... <laughs> that's how it works in the U.S. as well, is yeah. the immigration debate is basically a proxy for the Trump debate. 
or the shouting match at least. Yeah. And it bleeds into other topics. Like for example, Trump getting criticized for not bombing enough countries by traditionally anti-war demographics, or at least I thought it they were. Hello, CRC. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm there's not, a little yeah. one. Here the cat dying. <laughs> this is kid. <laughs> oh, that's in the, Oh, that's all the way over there in the background. I'm just having some trouble finding all my stuff. So, uh, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to participate today just because I again uh, have the kids um, until my wife gets home. And uh, that's I, fine. I, we started two hours ago. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> CRC, I think you need to officially have your kid be part of the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> get him a mic. <laughs> yeah, he's right. He's right here. I have a mm-hmm. whole setup that I've got that uh, where I'm, I've got a, a nice mic, but um, for today, I just again have the headset. And that concludes the first episode of The Bailey, the podcast of the Mott. If you enjoyed what you heard, I don't know what's wrong with you. But if you'd like to hear more, please uh, visit the Reddit. And that's where we'll be posting new episodes. If you yourself would like to be a contributor, please uh, reach out to us on any of the posts on the Reddit. 